please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Mother Teresa once said, Each one of us has something beautiful to do for God. Think about that for a moment. Each one of us has something beautiful to do for God. How do you respond to that? With a sense of excitement and wonder about being a part of God's transforming work? About being involved in something far bigger than yourself? Perhaps with a sense of fear or dread. Or maybe you find yourself responding as Moses does when God calls him to lead his people out of 400 years of captivity in Egypt. Moses is an unlikely person for God to assign this task. He's born into a Hebrew family, but is adopted and raised in the palace by Pharaoh's daughter. As a young man, Moses sees a Hebrew slave being beaten by an Egyptian. Moses steps in and defends the Hebrew by killing the Egyptian. When confronted the next day, he runs into the desert where he becomes a shepherd for the next 40 years until God appears to him in a burning bush asking him to do something beautiful for him. Return to Egypt, free the Hebrew people, and lead them into the promised land. Moses is reluctant. He peppers God with a series of questions and excuses that reveal his insecurities and doubts about whether he is the right person God is choosing for this job. Who am I to go to Pharaoh? What do I say if they ask me your name? What if they don't believe me? You know I don't do well with speeches. Lord, Send someone else. Doesn't it seem like our questions and excuses to God often sound a lot like those of Moses? Lord, I'm nobody. There's no way I can do that. What if no one listens to me? I just don't have what it takes. Surely, someone else is better qualified than me. Yet in the midst of our doubts, questions, and excuses, God patiently addresses each one with the response that reveals who he is and his plans for us, just as he does Moses. It's one of God's responses to Moses that I want us to think about this morning. It's a response that speaks to us in our struggle to see ourselves as people who God wants to do something beautiful in and through. When Moses asked, suppose everyone refuses to listen to my message and no one believes that you really appeared to me, God responds to Moses' question with a question of his own. What is that 
in your hand. Moses looks down, shrugs his shoulders, and says, It's just my shepherd's staff. God tells Moses to throw it on the ground. It immediately turns into a snake. Moses jumps back in fear. God then tells Moses to pick the snake up by its tail. When he does, the snake turns back into his shepherd's staff. And God says, Moses, that staff in your hand is all you need for the Hebrew people to believe that I've sent you. I know that it's just a shepherd's staff, but that's okay. I think that God is asking each one of us the same question. What is that in your hand? What have you got that can be used for my purposes? Do you realize that what you have is enough for me to do something beautiful with your life? Like Moses, we tend to be skeptical. It's just a staff. It's just me. There's nothing special about me or what I bring to God's purposes. If that's what we think, we're as wrong as Moses. But what exactly do we bring? What does the shepherd's staff represent for us? Probably more than we realize. Author Trevor Hudson suggests that each of us holds at least three things in our hands. He talks about our abilities, a list that is pretty wide open, from using a computer to managing projects, to resolving conflict, to coaching sports, to musical ability, to offering hospitality, to encouraging people to interceding for others in prayer, to carpentry, cleaning, baking, and on and on the list goes. God is able to take our abilities, what we may consider common everyday things, shepherd's staffs, and use them in extraordinary ways to accomplish his purposes because nothing is too small for God. Hudson talks about his lifelong desire to be a channel of God's healing love, but is unsure how this could ever happen. Then in his early 20s, he took part in a leadership training program where one day the participants were asked to think about each other's lives and to say what they valued about one another. They went around the circle affirming each other. When it was his turn, the group was uncomfortably silent for some time. Finally, someone broke the silence and said, I think you're a good listener. The others in the group added their consent. I agree. I think you listen quite well. Yes, you're a gifted listener. Rather than feeling affirmed, he felt deflated as his colleagues had been affirmed for having excellent people skills, being able to delegate well, having a capacity for visionary leadership. Yet all they could think of for him was he was able to listen to others. 
Later that night, as he prayed, he decided to offer to God what was in his hands, his listening ability. He now says he's deeply moved by the opportunities that God has given him to use the ability to listen. It has given his life tremendous meaning and value. Can you believe that your abilities can be powerful tools for God and his kingdom? What is that in your hand? He also talks about life experiences, lessons we've learned while growing up, difficulties we've experienced, joys and sorrows we've known, work we've done, mistakes we've made, and hopefully the lessons we've learned from these mistakes, our forgiven sins, successes we've achieved, and perhaps the painful things we've suffered. Missionary and pastor David Siemens tells how in the early 1950s, during their first term in India, he hurriedly caught the morning train to attend a meeting at another mission station. Because it was just a day trip, he took very little with him. However, when they were about halfway to their destination, the train stopped due to a derailment, and they ended up at a small station out in the middle of nowhere. Unfortunately, in his haste that morning, he had neglected to bring anything with him to read. As he wandered the station, he found a dilapidated bookstall that had one book in English, Atlas Shrugged by Anne Rand. Out of desperation, he bought the book and spent the next day and a half reading what he describes as the incredible anti-Christian philosophy of selfishness through all 1,000-plus pages. By the end, he considered this day and a half of his life as wasted. Ten years later, as a pastor in Wilmore, Kentucky, an Asbury College student called him to make an appointment because he was struggling with some serious intellectual questions regarding his Christian faith. As soon as the student entered his office, he felt the student believed that he had made a mistake in coming to see him. He asked the student about his intellectual questions. The student reluctantly shared that they had to do with some books that he had read that had really shook him up. When asked about the books and his doubts, the student said with a sigh, Well, I suppose you've never even heard of a book called Atlas Shrugged by Anne Rand. Siemens told him, Not only have I heard of it, I've read it. She's quite a writer, isn't she? Immediately, the student began dropping his defenses. And this marked the beginning of a friendship and a mentoring relationship that lasted the next two years that established this student in a solid Christian faith, all because of a very frustrating and wasted 
day and a half of his life. He says, it took me 10 years to realize that God was in that situation and was now using it to help this student. God can use anything, even the frustrating and seemingly useless things that happen to all of us. We see this truth in Moses' life. Initially, Moses may not appear to be the best candidate to lead God's people. He kills an Egyptian, then hides in the desert for 40 years, tending sheep. It seems like a waste of time. But as we look closer at Moses' life, we're reminded of his upbringing in the palace where he was educated and came to understand the inner workings of power in Pharaoh's court. During Moses' 40 years as a shepherd, he learned important survival skills in the desert. But even more important was his spiritual preparation during those quiet, lonely years of shepherding, where he grew closer to God. This is true for us as well. Our life experiences, good and bad, if offered to God, become a great resource in his hands. For some, this may be where we struggle the most. Sometimes, It's hard to imagine God taking our negative experiences and using them for good. But we must remember that giving God these painful experiences doesn't make them good, nor does it justify them, because some of them can only be described as evil. But if God is who he says he is, then he can redeem our experiences. God never wastes anything. He can use all of our life experiences. As counterintuitive as it sounds, we also hold our inadequacies in our hands. To us, inadequacy seems like a bad thing, as though we're deficient, in need of some help. And that's the point. We are in need of help, God's help. We're especially aware of this, of our inadequacies, when God asks us to do something that seems impossible. This is definitely true for Moses. Can you imagine how Moses feels when God asks him to lead his people into freedom? No wonder Moses objects. Hudson says, Moses' story reminds us that one of the clearest marks of God's call is that it leaves us feeling totally inadequate. What matters, however, is how we choose to deal with this inadequacy. It can paralyze us, cause us to make excuses and run, or... It can lead us into a greater dependency upon God. The summer between my first and second years of seminary, I accepted a position at two Methodist churches. 
because I was there to help an aging pastor, he was scheduled to go in to have surgery in the hospital that would take him out of work about the first two weeks of the summer. Keenly aware of my own inadequacies, I was very nervous about my responsibilities for the summer as I was hired to lead the youth group, vacation Bible school, a special summer Sunday school program, do pastoral care and visitation that the pastor had been unable to do for quite a while, preach a couple of times, plus a number of other things. In the weeks prior to starting the job, I planned and prepared for several of those responsibilities, including the preaching. Somehow, I gained great comfort going into the job, believing that I was fairly well prepared and somewhat had things under control. That didn't last for long. Soon after the pastor went into the hospital, it became clear that that is where he would be for the entire summer. I'm sure I would have turned that job down if I'd known ahead of time how that summer would unfold for me in charge of all the pastoral responsibilities, including preaching every Sunday. In the midst of my inadequacies, I clung to God as he took what little I had in my hands and used it in miraculous ways to not only bring these churches together in the midst of their pastor's health crisis, but to transform many lives, including my own. Now, it's imperative to understand that even though God's question What is that in your hand implies that God can use our abilities, experiences, inadequacies, even the spiritual gifts he has given us to do great things. All of this is incomplete unless he's in it. Actually, God's question doesn't mean that Moses has enough in his hands to do what God is leading him to do. The question is God's way of asking Moses if he'll let God use what he has. It's because of God's presence and power that he can take a common, everyday shepherd's staff, turning it into a divine symbol to use for his purposes. It's only in the presence and power of God that what we have in our hands takes on any real significance. Some of you may remember one of the popular ads from the 2011 Super Bowl, a Volkswagen commercial that pictures a child dressed in a Darth Vader costume going around the house attempting to use the force. The Star Wars theme plays in the background as this little Darth Vader goes from room to room, raising his hands dramatically, hoping for something to happen. The dryer in the utility room, the family dog lying on the floor, a doll on the bed, 
nothing as his arms drop to his sides in discouragement. The next scene shows Darth Vader Jr. standing outside by the family car. Once again, he lifts his arms when all of a sudden, the horn beeps, the lights flash, and the engine kicks in. He jumps back in surprise and satisfaction. Then the camera pans out to the kitchen window where we see his father standing, pushing the starter button on the key fob. This ad playfully illustrates how we can do nothing apart from God, our Father. It's God's moment-by-moment presence with Moses that makes his time of desert preparation so meaningful. God helps Moses grasp this even as he answers all of Moses' questions. In Exodus chapter 3, God identifies himself as I am who I am. God tells Moses his name because he desires intimacy with Moses and with the Hebrew people. Think about how hesitant we are at times to tell someone we don't know, whether on the phone or in person, our name. Because once we share our name, There's almost a sense of commitment that goes with it, as well as a sense of relationship as we allow this person into our life, letting them know at least a part of who we are. Salespeople often ask our names because they know that it creates a bond, a connectedness with us that makes it more difficult for us to say no. Then think about the implications of God telling Moses and the Hebrew people his name. We begin to get an idea of the sense of closeness that giving one's name creates, the sense of entering into a relationship. God volunteers his name because he desires intimacy with them and with us. God gives us his name so we may call upon him, may talk with him in a much deeper and more personal way. He wants us to know who he is, that he is faithful, just, true, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Because Moses knows God's name, he can move forward with confidence. But God's presence and power go even deeper than knowing his name. God is interested in an even closer intimacy when he tells Moses, I will be with you, or my presence will be with you. The word presence for Hebrew can also be translated face. The face of the Lord will not leave Moses or his people. God will be with them. The word face implies an even closer and more personal encounter with God. 
There are times that a text, an email, or even a phone call isn't enough. We need to see someone's face. By seeing their face, it relaxes us, calms our fears, gives us a sense of confidence, of support and encouragement like nothing else can do. So when God tells Moses, I will be with you, he is saying, my face is turned toward you. I see, I hear, I am so close to you that I know everything that is happening to and with you. God isn't saying to Moses, here's your assignment, report back to me when it's completed. Rather, God is saying, here's your assignment, we'll do this together. You won't go alone because my face will be with you. I will go with you every step of the way. When we're struggling to believe that God can do something beautiful with our lives, we need this kind of connectedness to God, the assurance that his face is turned toward us. When we have the blessing of God's presence, his face, we have the greatest blessing there is because there is nothing more we need. It's God's presence and power that makes the difference. As C.S. Lewis says, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. In the movie Air Force One, a group of terrorists hijack the president's plane, seeking the release of their leader. As Air Force One's rudder and elevator are destroyed and the fuel tank punctured, the plane races toward disaster. A standby U.S. Air Force Rescue HC-130 is called in to conduct a daring airborne rescue over the Caspian Sea, sending para-jumpers over a zip line to retrieve the survivors left on the plane. The president insists that his wife and daughter are rescued before him, leaving him to fight the man who aided in this terrorist plot. The president overpowers the traitor and attaches himself to the zip line, making it to safety just before his plane crashes into the sea. As soon as the president sets foot on the other plane, the, the, the pilot declares over the intercom system, Liberty 2-4 is now... Air Force One. The call sign isn't changed because suddenly it's a different plane. What makes the difference is the president is now on board. His presence completely changes this ordinary plane 
into something extraordinary simply because he's there. Isn't this a little like when God steps into our ordinary, plain lives? His presence and power change everything as he takes what we offer him, turning it into something beautiful for his use. As God invites us to do something beautiful for him, something beyond ourselves, may we give him what is in our hands so we may experience his presence and power like never before. Amen.